think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the boys in short pants, the 10th episode. We've made it 10 episodes in. Is this our uh, is this our tenth episode? Is next episode the t- count as the the anniversary episode? Yeah. <laughs> so this week we've got uh, an interview. We've got a, an old guest back, a friend of the show, Dr. Paul Wilson. Uh, is going to talk to us about his career in uh, his long career in uh, parliamentary opposition research as as head of uh, the Reform Party's research bureau in the 1990s. Um, his sort of passage through there, and then uh, when he came back to work for the Harper government in 2006 uh, in uh, policy capacity in various ministers offices and uh, eventually in the prime minister's office so that'll be a really good interview lots of content uh, about how it is that ministers offices work and how opposition research offices work before we dig into that i'd like to highlight uh, three perhaps lesser known pieces of uh, parliamentary news that came out this week um, all of them are sort of great examples of different parties working together, and I felt like that should probably be highlighted for once instead of just the oppositional nature. Um, the first one, not, not to dig in too much the issue, but was uh, the accusations or allegations of Christia Freeland's father being... Grandfather. Uh, grandfather, rather, yeah. uh, being a Nazi collaborator. Um, what I'd just like to note from uh, Fife's piece in the Globe and Mail here. It's Bob Fife at CTV? No, nope. he was formerly at CTV, but he moved over to the Globe and Mail okay, about uh, six months ago. It's good ago. we can fact check each other on the fly. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> was uh, Peter Kent. So Peter Kent is the conservative foreign affairs critic. And I just thought his uh, quote. And uh, one of the few people to be called a piece of shit in the house by uh, Justin Trudeau also. That is that is absolutely true. I can't remember the context that came about in. I don't think you even need it. <laughs> um, but his quote is, it is unacceptable. Uh, it seems they're trying to smear a minister with historical detail that has probably been misrepresented. It is unfair and it is typical of what we've seen in other countries and it has nothing to do with her ability to represent Canada. Yeah. So it's sort of nice to see a display of unity uh, yeah. against the Russians on this particular file. I, I will say on this, this subject, um, it doesn't really seem to me from what I've seen that it's actually misrepresented at all. It's just that it's more or less irrelevant. I mean, there are lots of people's of European extraction whose grandparents were Nazi collaborators to some degree. So it's not like that was like, I mean, it's not good, but you know, I mean, what my takeaway from reading the, uh, the news articles on this was that suddenly a lot of journalists seem to have expertise in Ukrainian history that yeah. had, had before gone unnoticed as there were suddenly all sorts of, yeah. uh, seeming experts on Ukrainian Nazi relations, um, which is, you know, you have to sort of question the depth of research they're able to do and the yeah, depth of I knowledge suppose on so, this. But I don't know. It's, I, I think it's basically irrelevant either one way or the other. I mean, yeah, and that's sort of what he pushes for, yeah. saying when the Russian embassy is shopping around stories, you, sh- you should probably produce a common front because what goes around comes around in terms of these things. Um, the next one I'd like to notice is uh, S-201, which is the genetic discrimination bill, um, passed through... First reading or second reading? I'd have to double check. It was second, I think. Second reading? Yes. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Second reading of the House um, by multi-party support. Uh, most notably, uh, the vast majority of liberal backbenchers voted with the NDP and with the Conservative Party against the government line. Yeah. Um, which doesn't happen Very all, early. all yeah. that often in uh, majority governments. The last time I can remember that happening was the e-petitions bill in the last parliament, where it was an NDP motion, or a bill actually, to allow 
um, e-petitions, which is now like something I use like fairly regularly, uh, that people can put forward petitions, and if uh, they get enough signatures, then an MP brings them to the House, and they get you know voted on and debated, and that passed with conservative backbench support. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, so that was pretty a, cool. Yeah, throw back to the reform there. Yeah. Um, so interestingly, the government's uh, response for why the government didn't support this uh, was because they were questioning the whether or not it'd be constitutional, um, because it has to do with healthcare and sort of directing uh, health insurance providers how to behave. They were worried. Uh, this was their open position, at least. They were worried as to how much it would impose onto provincial jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Um, because of course the constitution dictates that healthcare is primarily in the jurisdiction of the provinces. Right. Um, sort of interestingly, one of the counter narratives going on was that the insurance industry had been fighting it because they were afraid that it would make the bill much more expensive. The quick primer on the bill is that it prevents um, people from having uh, genetic testing used against them for health insurance reasons. Yeah. Uh, for instance, if you're thinking about getting genetic testing for, say, something like Tay-Sachs disease, um, there's previously an incentive for people to not get this testing, right. lest their healthcare company find out about it and demand it or try and compel yeah. it. So you might have adverse health outcomes because you don't want to know something. Yes. Because you don't want to, like, pay more for something that you're already, like, yeah. So it, I can get why you'd want to make that illegal. And at the same time, the yeah. healthcare industry is obviously uh, invested in knowing as much information about its clients as possible and making the best decisions right. in that direction. Classic tension between uh, good, good, old, good old capitalism and human health. Moving on to the last one. <laughs> I'm actually going to let that one slide. <laughs> Moving on to the last one. Um, what is the Just Act, which is the private member's bill uh, of... Uh, Rona Ambrose, leader of the opposition, that has now passed through second reading uh, on a fast track aided by Tom Mulcair and supported unanimously by all health, uh, sorry, not healthcare members, all members of the House. And so that bill uh, works to ensure that all new federal judges receive sexual assault training. Yeah. And of course, as a response to some of the stories coming out of uh, Alberta in recent month as months as well as Nova Scotia more recently yeah. uh, to ensure that our federal judges have a little better grasp of how sexual assault yeah. works because uh, judges are, are old typically because they have to have been practicing for at least 10 years uh, so they, they sort of demographically lag behind you know other institutions society. Yeah. and society and sometimes in their ideas as I think we've seen uh, with Judge Camp and, or actually former Judge Camp now, um, yeah. in Alberta, saying that uh, a, you know, a uh, a woman, and actually didn't he refer to her as the defendant too? Yeah, yeah that's oh, that was very telling. Misspeaking, but yeah. perhaps uh, telling. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Freudian, um, and also that she should keep her knees shut, which is you know, not really his job. So the fast track will look uh, pretty good at moving that bill forward a lot quicker yeah probably a couple months yeah so, off the calendar. something along those lines so it'll go directly into committee and then especially if there's little opposition yeah throughout the rest of the bill's life cycle then it should move through both the house and the senate very very rapidly which yeah. we'll be cool. good to see yeah and also the genetic discrimination bills come back to that briefly uh that was a senate bill too it was uh s201 yeah so that's kind of unusual isn't it yeah it's uh, a little rare there's not many senate bills that make it through so it's the senate equivalent of a private member's bill yeah um and it goes to the, it starts in the senate and then goes to the house neat um, okay so to, notably just to make a quick mention on the numbering system it means it is 
the first bill introduced in the Senate of this uh, session of Parliament, I believe. Oh. Because huh. the uh, Senate bills start at 200, and uh, private members' bills, uh, sorry, uh, regular bills start at one in the House. Okay. Excellent. So we'll roll that, so that interview. Yeah, more you know. We'll roll that interview with uh, Professor Wilson. We'll see you on the other side. Professor Paul Wilson, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks very much. So we're here today with Professor Wilson to talk a little bit uh, more in depth this time about his background and his career in politics, as well as um, a sort of broader explanation of what it is that political staff do and the sort of various tasks that various kinds of political staffers have. So Professor Wilson, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into politics in the first place? Oh, how I get into politics. Um, well, here's, here's, here's my story. I, I, was, I was doing a PhD in early modern English history at Queen's University, Henry VIII and his children. Seems very relevant to, yeah, uh, to that. Ab absolutely. Well, I, I, was, I was looking at, at uh, um, the politics of religion in, in the English court under Edward VI, who was one of the little tutors uh, between the two big tutors, between right. Henry and Elizabeth, and so Edward was in there. Um, so you know what they say about PhDs, you're, you're, you're studying um, more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing. So this is quite a specialized um, study, and I, I, was, I was expecting to teach English history um, you know, for, my, uh, for my career, medieval, early modern. Uh, I had never studied Canadian politics. Well, I took one Canadian politics class when I was in my first year, didn't really like it, so never studied it again. I did as well. <laughs> yeah, and I, I found that uh, I found that that studying history gave me the kind of political, um, uh, the political uh, perspective you know, that I that I enjoyed. You know, particularly 16th century when when somebody's about to be executed. You know, that kind of concentrates the mind. So high stakes, <laughs> high stakes politics. Uh, and anyway, that's 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 what I was doing. Um, and during the course of my PhD, I, I, I guess Canada was um, uh, it was the uh, the later in the in the the, the Mulroney government. Um, so kind of recovering from the Meech Lake Accord, the Charlottetown Accord um, had been uh, that was that was kind of the political talk of the day. And uh, so I followed Canadian politics, but I wasn't really studying it. Um, uh, and that was. Uh, you know, as I say, I was minding my own business. Uh, I had a, uh, a an office mate at Queens who who ran the campus International Socialists, and so I got uh, to read a free copy of the Socialist Worker every week, and it was in the you know ninety ninety one I don't remember um, when the Socialist Worker was very upset about about this guy named Preston Manning who was going to come to Queens, and uh, they I'd never heard of the Reform Party. I mean. I was from Ontario. Most people hadn't. Um, so I, uh, but they were just so exercised. I thought, well, actually, I'm going to go and see what all this fuss is about. And so I went to hear uh, Manning when he was at, at Queen's, or I tried to, because um, uh, there were a lot of people on campus who showed up and basically tried to shout him down and wouldn't allow him to speak. Um, the building was ringed around by hooded uh, masked protesters who were jostling seniors as they were leaving the building kind of left a bit of distaste uh, but but what I heard reform talking about seemed seemed reasonable and I didn't understand why it was getting such a such a almost violent response uh, so that was kind of my first introduction to the reform party I had no intention of becoming active but that's where I first learned about them and uh, 
um, after I finished my PhD a couple of years later, uh, a, a, a friend of mine got a job working for um, the, the research office, and uh, so I came to Ottawa to work with the research office. Um, there weren't a lot of reformers around Ottawa. Um, they needed staff, and so it was an opportunity. So not being a member of the party, not ha ever having been involved in the party, um, but you know, being a researcher and, and uh, with some... Uh, I, I guess political acuity, um, I uh, had an opportunity to come to Ottawa. So that was the start of my political <laughs> career. Went for a couple of years after that as well, eh? How long were you with Reform for? Well, I, I started in 1994. Okay. Um, so, I mean, the election had been in, 90, in October of 93. Uh, so the Reform MPs, the, the class of 93 Reform MPs rode into Ottawa on their, their horses, you know, for the start of the parliamentary session in, uh, I think, January. Um, so they had been, they'd been in Parliament for five or six months, I guess, by the time that I, I came to work for them. So it was near the beginning, but not right at the beginning. And uh, so that was 94, and I, I stayed through till 2001. Um, so I, I was uh, was working in the research office for the for for reform, and it was the the third party, as uh, uh, Prime Minister Kretschmer used to talk about the third party, um, and uh, uh, I took over as research director in '96, I guess, and then we had uh, quite a lot of activity. We had um, the '97 election, the you know United Alternative, several referenda and kind of internal discussions through the United Alternative process, uh, the, the Canadian Alliance policy process, founding the Canadian Alliance, the leadership campaign for the Canadian Alliance, uh, which uh, Stockwell Day won in the summer of, of uh, 2000, and then going right into the, uh, um, the election in, what, November of 2000. Uh, and then I, I, I retired in, uh, in March. I wasn't up to a third parliament in opposition so yeah so uh, 94 to 2001 and so you mentioned working or being the director of the research uh, office uh, for reform what exactly does a research office do uh, because it's not I, I wouldn't say it's comparable to researching Henry VIII no no um, uh, it, it's 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 rather different from from academic life um, it was in the late 1960s that Pierre Trudeau uh, decided to provide funding to the opposition parties, actually to all parliamentary parties, for uh, parliamentary research offices. Uh, so the government also, get, and the, the funding since then has been prorated to um, seats in the House of Commons. So the government gets you know quite a large chunk of funding for a research office, and that's usually um, you know, government uh, government caucus services or something, some, something like that. Uh, on the government side, it doesn't rival the prime minister's office, but it, it's an extra source, um, you know, of, of research and support uh, for 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 government MPs. On the opposition side, the research office is essential because there is no prime minister's office for the opposition. There's no public service support for the opposition. Um, so, you know, each opposition MP has a few staffers um, and, you know, the leader uh, really doesn't have that much support except for the party, um, you know, the research office the, the, that is funded through this kind of uh, this, this, this parliamentary provision. So um, that office does everything. It does, you know, some people will be doing it as a communication side. 
um, which would provide kind of basic tour support and staffing for the leader and um, you know doing communication support in all sorts of ways I'm sure nowadays that's changed into heavy social media and uh, um, you know, that 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 sort of thing on the research side um, it's everything from the political research um, into what the government is doing um, so uh, filing access to information requests trying to you know ferret out uh, scandals or controversies anything that you can use to feed the media um, uh, going back into into our day the uh, quote billion dollar boondoggle um, the HRDC grants and contributions um, a scandal of uh, uh, what early 2000 um, was uh, was in large part driven by the, the research office so that was doing that sort of political digging um, uh, is, is a function of research offices but we also provided policy support to the leader and to all of the critics and MPs on private members bills on committee work um, on uh, uh, responding to government legislation that was in the house um, so really it's a very big job with relatively few resources um, so yeah there's a lot I mean in the opposition there's a lot that needs to be done and they don't have many resources to do it um, so we had uh, we had uh, you know I don't know what it would have been seven eight people working in opposition research some of them were experts in the field with you know kind of uh, established uh, professionals uh, who had um, deep knowledge in one subject and then some of the researchers were um, you know were, were, were more junior who were um, you know keen politically motivated but they weren't uh, especially subject matter experts an office needs a range of, of, of people um, opposition research offices have not received a lot of scholarly attention uh, in fact I can think of only one article Edwin Black was a Queen's professor who ran the Progressive Conservatives first office and he wrote a paper in 1973 and uh, I remember reading it you know what 20 years later 25 years later and thinking wow <laughs> the type of choices he was had to make about resource allocation and do you do you try to cover you know a, a lot of uh, do you try to cover the policy spectrum in a wide way but fairly superficially or do you try to cover you know devote your resources to specific things deeply but then leaving other things kind of undone um, do you support the leader do you support the individual critics uh, how do you allocate to sort of day-to-day stuff I didn't mention question period question period was a huge thing because you know the, the party wants to ask questions in question period well what are we going to ask um, we need to have you know, research and background that's going to try to sell our position for 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 the news media was it this was, uh, was this after the reform party stopped uh, using questions from constituents <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that they had to research the questions a little differently yeah well they always they always had an, an aspect of doing their own research but um, I mean question period is is uh, um, uh, how you approach it strategically can, can 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 differ. Do you look in the newspaper and say, okay, basically today the today the media the news media are interested in these things, these three things. So we're going to ask about those three things since that's what's going to be in the news. We want to get in those stories. That's a legitimate approach. Um, so you read the Globe and you know a few other newspapers at seven o'clock in the morning and say, okay, there's our question period prep. Or do you try to break stories? that haven't yet hit the news and try to be the leading edge 
Um, we tried to do both, um, with sometimes with mixed results. Uh, when you try to break your own stories, you could spend a lot of time on it. But if you don't get pickup, then it you know it's well, the old yeah. tree falling in the forest right. thing. Um, so you know you need to have a range of, of, of approaches. And people, uh, you know, we'd have a question period meeting in the morning. People would argue about you know we should be doing this, we should be doing that. So research, we supported that. Um, sometimes it was providing uh, the 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 you know, generating the ideas. Um, sometimes it was providing uh, kind of research support for the things that we were going to do. And sometimes it was uh, providing um, context to say, well, you want to say this, but you can't because here's the background and here's, you know, this is what you'd be getting into if you went down that road. And mm. um, maybe, you know, it's compl sometimes it's more complicated than, you know, it looks in the newspaper. So, uh, so we did all of that research support. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a lot of work, it's very interesting, um, uh, but it's more fun being in government than in opposition. Right. <laughs> um, did you have a role in policy development as head of the research office in the reform days? We, we, we did. Um, the pol the, the, first of all, the caucus was closely integrated into the party's um, policy development process. So uh, the individual critics were able to bring forward um, oh, they were called caucus issue, you know, caucus issue statements. So a critic could say, I'd like to take a position on this. Um, they would draft a statement. We would often support them in that. It would go to, to be debated in caucus. And if it was adopted by caucus, then it would, it would, you know, go from being, um, you know, it would sort of be, I think it was, it was, I think it was a white sheet. This is a caucus issue statement and it would be put in the official party binder. Mm -hmm. Um, and at the next reform party, uh, convention, they called them assemblies, the next reform assembly, it would be voted on by the membership. So we supported the process through the MPs, but we also uh, worked with, I mean, the leader was in charge of the um, uh, overall, you know, had sort of a supervisory role of the whole whole process. We would work with the, uh, uh, with, with, with the party uh, when, as they were developing uh, proposals that were going to be voted on by the membership. Um, so re reform had quite a, um, a detailed process for these things, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, in, in, in reform, it was the um, it was the local uh, riding associations and the party membership who determined. So, um, if 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 a couple of people sitting around their kitchen table, you know, adopted a resolution and they could get the support of their local association, and that local association could get the support of other associations for that motion. Then it would get on the floor of the uh, of the assembly and could be adopted as party policy, and um, the uh, uh, the the powers that be in the party really didn't have a way to stop it. Mm -hmm. um, so the reform blue book had a lot of you know interesting things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how did uh, your analysis complement Library of Parliament analysis? I know uh, members of Parliament are entitled to use the Library of Parliament Research Service for to answer questions. How did they use that as opposed to their own caucus research services? Library of Parliament, I mean, the, the, the services through the library are tremendous. They're a very valuable resource for MPs. Uh, they're especially valuable for opposition MPs who, as I said, you know, have no, um, they have no public service support. So if, if, if you want to know, you know, hey, I've got this idea for a private member's bill or I've got this idea, you know, for something that I'm, I'm trying to push, um, uh, or I want to know the context of something that's being debated. The Library of Parliament has some real depth that they can they can provide 
um, they can provide background. Uh, you know, this, these are the, the five times this has been tried before, and this is how it differed. Um, and they have access to a ton of things there, and documents and things that are you know, not easily accessible by other people. Um, so we would use them, I mean, critics would use them, we would use them a lot. Um, they provided a context, they provided um, very useful background on issues, but they're not political. Um, so, you know, if they, they, they could show what had been done before, but they didn't typically uh, explore, you know, what are your options? So they might say, well, you know, here's a few options that have been, that, have, that people have put on the table before. But as, a, as, the, as the, uh, the political research people, we could then take that and we could work out, you know, for our party's context, based on where the critic wanted to go, where the leader wanted to go, we could give sort of more politically honed advice. But getting that background from the library was um, was tremendous. It's exactly the sort of thing that, you know, the public service might might provide within the government context. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. There seems to be a sort of analogous relationship there yeah. to the nonpartisan expertise and uh, technical analysis complementing the political analysis provided e by Except that. that, and this isn't a knock on the Library of Parliament, because I think that they're, they're, they're tremendous. But, you know, if you have a, uh, a government department with you know, a real depth of policy experience on all of those issues, mm -hmm. they're going to have an expertise that, that the library with, you know, a limited number of people, um, they're effectively generalists. I mean, you right. might have somebody who's working on, you know, tends to support one committee, but that's going to be one person doing all of the uh, policy, you know, within an area. They're not going to be able to approach the expertise of, of a government department, which has, you know, multiple people who can specialize on things, so um, you know, it, it isn't. It's analogous to the public service mm -hmm. in, in, in a sense. It's not nearly the same a depth of support. Again, that's not a criticism of the library. <laughs> it's just that's just the way it is. So, but if you're when you're in opposition, you take whatever um, kind of resources and assistance you can you can get. You, similarly, you you would you would try to draw on outside resources um, on experts in the field, whether at universities or you know in in industry. But of course, you have to be aware that people on the outside have an agenda. Um, it's fine; they're they're allowed to. But you have to, you know, just right. be careful about what's being fed in. Can you speak to to that a little bit to, as to how political parties engage outside experts? Like, would it be as simple as calling up a university professor who appears to be working on the same economic issue as you? And would you contract them or just ask their advice, sort of, uh, as a free service? Like, what, what's the relationship between a political party, especially an opposition, and some of the experts lingering, lingering on the periphery of uh, sort of the field or of government? Yeah, I mean, there's, 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 there's a huge number of, of, of policy actors outside of government. Um, obviously, government relations consultants, whether it's, yeah, whether it's consultants or government relations people working for associations or working for, you know, corporations, um, they've you know they're all going to be they'll be stumbling over themselves in fact to get access to to uh, policy makers um, I think in the old days it wasn't nearly as common for lobbyists to be approaching 
um, the opposition or MPs broadly. I mean, it happened, but I don't think it was as much as it is now. If you read, you know, every a few times a year, the Hill Times uh, assessment of, you know, based on lobbying registrations and monthly reports, who's been meeting whom, uh, MPs are often nowadays at the top of the list. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. that's changed in terms of lobby strategy. And uh, you'd have to ask a lobbyist maybe, you know, why that's what their their perspective on that. Um, but it wasn't as common, I think, back then. But it still did did happen. So meeting with you know with kind of professional government relations people, they're a source of um, of expertise that that an opposition party could draw on. Of course, they have you know by definition they've got an agenda. You have to be careful with with that. But if you if you understand. Um, you know, the fact that they're coming from a, that doesn't invalidate it, just means you have to be careful in assessing it. University professors are certainly one. We, well, we, we dealt with, with, with professors. Um, uh, you mentioned pay. I mean, the opposition doesn't have a lot of money for this. Um, uh, maybe a group of critics, you know, in an area could put together some money for a contract. I know that that used to happen. Often you would just be asking people, you know, can just give me your ideas. Um, obviously, if, if you have less money, you're less able to ask people for detailed work. So, you know, look, could you give me a few hours of your time and give me some ideas? That's different than saying, could you take six months and write up a really detailed report? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so you kind of get what you what you pay for. Um, uh, there are going to be academics that are more willing to work with one party than another. So if you have people that you think are um, are disposed to working with you, then that you know you're certainly going to going to approach them. Um, there are uh, there are retired public servants. Occasionally, there were um, current public servants <laughs> who were prepared to give you information. And uh, um, uh, again, you know, when you hear the sound of an axe grinding, you have to take that into into account um, because not everything is as it seems. But you know, if if somebody's got something critical to say of the government, the opposition is likely to listen. Um, and you know, before we raised it in question period, of course, we had to be very careful about assessing it. But um, you know, you would certainly take. You, you would take help wherever you could. Um, but again, you, you get what you pay for. Um, uh, outside sources only go only go so far. Um, and uh, you really do need to have some kind of in-house capacity to be able to bring everything together, uh, do the analysis, and make sure that the political assessment is you know going to be useful to your to your to your MPs. So after you left, uh, the Reform Party, you, or rather the Canadian Alliance at that point, and, and government altogether, or the, the realm well, of parliament. politics altogether. Yeah, let's say rather. parliament, yeah. Uh, you came back in 2006 after uh, Prime Minister Harper was elected the first time? Yes, yes, that's right. Right, and you um, were in a minister's office at least for a while, and then transitioned eventually to the Prime Minister's office. That's right. So would you like to tell us a little bit about that trajectory and how yeah. that went for you? Well, um, uh, as as a, as a as a conservative, when the you know when when the new conservative party, Conservative Party of Canada, was elected in two thousand and six, I thought, well, um, you know, the, a conservative government doesn't come along all that often. Um, you know, sometimes it seems like only once in a lifetime. So I better take the chance to um, I better take the chance to get involved. Having worked in in opposition you know, for seven years, so I had spent a fair bit of um, you know, a fair bit of time on that, and 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 felt passionate uh, about 
the cause, uh, it was uh, it was a real privilege to go back to work for a, for a government. I'd never had that experience, um, and I thought that I understood government. You know, from the opposition side, I thought I understand how cabinet works. I understand the processes, um, but I wanted to see it for myself. Turned out, actually, you know, I understood it pretty well in a high-level outline, but details, you really have to be there to under, under, understand how things work. Um, so I, um, I accepted a job with, uh, with Minister Vic Taves in uh, uh, 2006, so a couple of months, I guess March 2006, so just after the, a couple of months after the government had, um, a month and a half after it had been sworn in, I went to work with him. He was the Minister of Justice, so... Um, Memorably. Memorably, yeah. Well, he was the he he got shuffled about a year later, less than a year later. So um, uh, that was my introduction to working in a minister's office. Um, I, I'm not a lawyer. Um, many of the people on the political I mean, there were a number of lawyers on the political staff, and there were of course the department are almost all lawyers. So I was one of the few non-union members around, which sometimes put you at a disadvantage, but also sometimes was an advantage because I asked questions that. No, no, it's nobody of else or, thought of, and sometimes yeah. that was useful. So. Different frame of reference. Yeah, but it, so that was that was my first uh, my my first experience. The justice was, um, a, it was a significant part of the government, the, the new government's agenda. Um, so we were we were pretty busy, and there was there's lots of policy work to do in 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 justice with with the criminal code and you know a number of other issues that 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 came up so um yeah that was that was a neat introduction and then from justice you went to well minister taves was shuffled from justice to treasury board uh in january of 2007 so um so i was i i, I think i've told told the story in class i was uh, i was in line at a ride in disney world um you know and i got a message on my blackberry saying we've been shuffled which for a political staffer means that you've lost your job because when your minister ceases to be a minister or changes portfolios um the minister has no obligation to bring you along um so um uh, during the course of the of uh, by, the, by the time i got to the front of the ride you know we found of the line we found that oh i had been rehired so that was that that was that was good news so as you mentioned I, he could very well have decided that Okay, uh, Dr. Wilson is a fantastic advisor at Justice, but I want someone with more knowledge of, of finances to come with me to Treasury Board or something. That could have happened, right? They, sure. Well, there's, they, a, there's, uh, there's any number of things. I mean, sometimes it's just, you know, you have somebody that the minister isn't really that happy with, and mm -hmm. hey, it's an opportunity to, you know, to, to, to cut loose the, 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 the dead weight. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a harsh way to put it. But, uh, you <laughs> know, I mean, it's, 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 it's conceivable. If, if a minister didn't really, you know, wasn't, really attached to somebody's work hey this is an opportunity to say really sorry but you know I don't have to fire you you're you know I just don't have to rehire you but right. there's there's a lot of other considerations one is expertise as you as you say um, uh, sometimes it's it's simply a matter of uh, of the size of the office some ministers offices are bigger uh, more numerous than mm -hmm. than others and so if you're if you're going from a small office to a larger office you know, a, a minister's office that has more budget, then it's probably going to be more opportunities. If you're being shuffled from, you know, a, a, an office which has a lot of staff to one that has fewer staff, then you may have to make some adjustments. Well, you will. Um, so that, that, that can be difficult. Justice to Treasury Board, 
they're, I mean, in our day anyway, we're, we're kind of comparable. So I think a number of the people from Justice moved over. Um, I think most of us, most of us did. Um, but some, some ministers, some staff um, have a different way to view it. Sometimes the Prime Minister's office gets involved and says, you know, we'd like this staffer to stay because they have an expertise they've worked up an expertise in that area. So sometimes the staffer will stay and you know a new minister will come in and they'll just assume the old staff so that there's some continuity. Mm-hmm. Um, that that is less about the person of the minister. Um, I mean that the, the 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 staffers aren't personally tied to the minister, but um, uh, yeah, so that the staff are almost inter- interchangeable. And and that's 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 I guess an issue of do the staff does do political staff belong to the minister? Or do they belong to the government? Mm-hmm. And I think for the Conservatives, particularly over time, it it began to look like the staffers belonged more to the government as a whole. And some of them would move with their ministers. Some would stay in a department. Uh, sometimes staffers, you know, the minister would stay. Um, there was no shuffle going on, but the staffer would move. Uh, and o- so over time, I think a lot of the staffers, the ones that I spoke to when I was doing some research on this, um, many of the staffers had served um, numerous ministers in numerous departments. So they they had expertise as political staff, but um, not specific to a department or even specific to a minister. Um, that has issues in terms of PMO centralization because if you if you're pretty sure that you know you're going to stay around as a staffer, but with different ministers. The common factor is PMO, mm-hmm. and so maybe you're more motivated to be responsive to the center rather than, mm-hmm. you know, responsive to your minister in opposing the center, for example. But right, there are implications. And speaking of PMO, after your your tenure with uh, Minister Taves, you went over to the Prime Minister's office to act as Director of Policy. Well, I had a I had a, a stopover at uh, in Gatineau at uh, HR Portage. at HR uh, yeah uh, Place de Portage Phase Four at uh, <laughs> um, the uh, at the at HRSTC over over there. Is I had I had worked with uh, Monty Solberg uh, okay. in opposition, um, and so he was one of the class of '93 reformers. So I had known him well. I had known his chief of staff um, quite well in opposition. Um, so I moved over. I left Treasury Board, went over to uh, to work with with uh, with Monty at HRSDC. Uh, he uh, shocked everyone when a day before the election was called uh, in in September of 2008, uh, he came in and told the staff that he wasn't running again. <laughs> so that was a that was a bit of a shock. Um, and uh, so it's it was weird during an election campaign uh, having the minister around because he wasn't running. He was in his office a lot. So that was very you're, you're unaccustomed to having your minister just sort of hanging around the office. Um, uh, uh, so the conservatives won. Uh, we were on staff, of course, you know, as his he remained the minister until there was a Another minister was sworn in. So uh, Diane Finley was sworn in as as minister of HRSDC. Uh, Monty then was formally retired. And again, we lost our jobs. There's a theme here. (laughs) Um, For for political staff, it's good to get used to that. Um, So I got rehired in in Minister Finley's office. So I worked with Diane Finley for for, um, a number of months until um, I had the opportunity to go to PMO. And... uh, I was grateful for the chance to work with uh, with with Minister Finley, but when you're offered the chance to be director of policy at PMO, you say thank you. <laughs> and when can I start? So yes. yeah, so I made that transition over there. It was just after the um, 
uh, the uh, the economic action plan budget basically. So in uh, what November of 2008, just after the election, um, the uh, the government had almost you know had almost it had a it had a near near death experience uh, with the uh, with a vote in the house and and the prorogation. Um, so uh, it was in that context. Then they came back in January, introduced the um, basically the uh, the stimulus budget, and just I think a week after the budget, I started at PMO. So, yeah, one of the sort of currents under here is you didn't work. We we haven't quite gotten to this, but you didn't work for the government long while it was a majority. Most of your time in government was spent during sort of the fickle years of the minority, when a lot of staffers had this looming over their head of the stability of their position where theoretically on any given week there were questions as to whether or not the government would you know, live another month or live another few months. So there was a lot of uh, instability during that time. How, how did that sort of impact your work environment with so much uncertainty well, lingering? Well, it sometimes reminds me of the, of the, of the, of the biblical story of... of uh, da- uh, Damocles? Well, I was thinking of Moses. You know. <laughs> 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 I've had that well, thought as well. It depends what, 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 uh, what, what Bible book. you're reading. <laughs> yeah. um, this, this, the story of Moses who gets the, you know, who gets, gets, gets the, gets the, the Israelites you know, to the promised land but doesn't go into it. Mm. Um, I, I didn't get into the promised land of the majority government. Um, no, so we we had. I mean, you know, it was a busy time. We had the uh, we had the um, uh, the government fell in March. There was there was the election. Um, the conservatives were returned with a majority on May the second. We had uh, mandate letters, a throne speech, budget within I think by June. So that was like within a month of the election. That was quite fast. Uh, and then. At the end of uh, at the end of June, I retired again, uh, and that was to come. That was to take the position at Carleton. So, yeah, I, I really only had like a month, you know, two months, I guess, in in majority government. Um, so most of my, you know, pretty much all my time at PMO was in the context of minority, um, where uh, you know, the government could fall any day. Every issue was life and death. Um, yeah, it's it's a. a kind of a stressful existence. <laughs> yes. I can imagine. Um, so that, that got you into your, your director of policy role at, that, at the PMO. How did that, first of all, what, what was your, your role as director of policy? Like what, where were you in sort of the, the, the org chart? What sort of papers went across your desk? And how did that compare to your role as director of research for reform? Um, so when people talk about about policy and they say, "Oh, you're the you're the you're the you're the director of of, of policy," um, I had the opportunity to meet um, uh, Prince Charles at one point when he was in Ottawa and just had a chance to shake hands and 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 he said, oh, "You're the you're the brains of the operation." Um, so well, you know, kind to say, but it's the furthest thing from the truth. Um, my job was not to be the brains of the operation. Um, you know, I'm I'm I have a PhD in English. 16th century history. Like, I'm not a specialist in any aspect of Canadian, you know, public policy. I mean, I hope I've picked it up, and I hope I'm, you know, fluent in it. But, but I'm not a. I'm not. You know, I don't consider myself an expert. Um, uh, the number of files that cross your cross your desk in the prime minister's office is just, you know, I mean, it's just it's constant. The difference, I mean, if you're in a minister's office, you have a fairly narrow range of files. But you're expected to know them from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's in you know like that would be in justice or that would be in HRSTC. You know I could talk about employment insurance 
process, you know, learned all about that and, and uh, you know, different, different things in those departments. I was pointing at Treasury Board, it's a bit different because you see everything from across government is coming to Treasury Board. But when it comes to Treasury Board, your job is to really, you know, you're assessing it at the very end. So, it, so at Treasury Board in the minister's office, the president's office, you're seeing everything but very superficially. Mm-hmm. You don't have the opportunity, or frankly, it's not your job, to get into the, the, the depth of the policy. Treasury Board's not for that. At, at the prime minister's office, you see everything, and it's in-depth. Uh, well, one person can't can't handle that. Right. I had a tremendous staff at uh, um, at PMO, not really very much different in size from what we had in the the opposition research office. It's funny policy offices, you know, tend to be about the same size. That the Prime Minister Trudeau's policy office is one or two people more than we had. So basically, about the same about the same size. You know, a, a director, uh, six seven policy. Um, advisors who divide up the government according to files. Um, my job, sometimes I thought my job was the editor-in-chief um, because in the in the Harper office, um, I mean, we met with the prime minister, we advised the prime minister, you know, in, in meetings. Of course, you know, I had the opportunity to talk with him, but most of our advice was written. That's mm-hmm. the way that he preferred to work. Um, you know, different prime ministers have different styles. But so we would, we would, we would send uh, written memoranda to the Prime Minister every day and a lot of my job was to work with the policy ad- advisors who were uh, responsible for files uh, and make sure when their memos came up first of all you know we'd talk about direction for the memos and how they were going to go and I'd have the opportunity for political input but when memos came up I would be the person who reviewed them you know is this making sense is your recommendation on the final page the same as your recommendation on you know kind of that you sort of you know Put on the second page. Is it internally consistent? Are we saying what we want to say? Have we, you know, that was that was that was my job, kind of like being a professor. Um, uh, so it wasn't to to know all the policy. Um, in a sense, I was the the the, the conductor. Um, you know, there's a lot of things going on, and I was trying to make sure they were coordinated, that people were covering things. Um, you can't have your whole policy team sitting in the morning meeting with with the prime minister because you know, it's just too many, too many people, and it's not a good use of time. So I was often a conduit from, you know, the morning meeting of the kind of department heads with the prime minister, uh, a conduit for direction, for questions. Um, you know, how are we going to approach stuff? I could report that back to to, to my people. So some of it was that sort of intermediary uh, role. Um, of course, you know, working with with ministers and cabinet committees. Um, the biggest difference from opposition was working with the public service because of course in opposition you have no public service the research office is the only support you know you've got MPs you've got critics who have you know one or two people but um, there really is nobody else uh, in government a lot of the time policy advisors are, are working with 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 their public service kind of counterparts so working with with the clerk working with you know deputy secretaries at uh, at PCO, working with uh, you know assistant secretaries, uh, working with the cabinet agenda, um, we didn't, you know, you know nobody can read all of the memoranda to cabinet that are coming up through government. 
they all crossed my desk. <laughs> I, you, you can't read them all. Maybe somebody, the prime minister could, but I couldn't. Um, I don't know how he managed to do that, but um, uh, just a tremendous capacity for digesting um, information. Um, so you, you know, you tried to keep up with, with, with what you could. I made sure that my people were, um, uh, you know, had what they needed. Um, so that's a lot of the job, but a, a lot of coordination with, with, with the public service in terms of, of what is coming, um, how issues are being viewed, often asking, you know, the, the PCO people for, for context, for further explanation of things. Um, of course, they wrote to the prime minister every day as well. Um, so PMO and PCO would, would have a kind of not coordinated memos, but they would write, we would write, and often we had um, uh, interchange with them in terms of, you know, what they were saying and how our advice was going to fit in. We didn't tell them what they, they you know, what to say. They gave their own advice. We gave our own advice, but we did have a lot of dialogue back and forth. And that's completely different from, from opposition. Um, and that was one of the parts that I enjoyed the most was working with 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 the public uh, with the public service. I have very high regard for the for the job that they um, that they 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 did. They do. It's a it's a you know PCO. There's a lot of a lot of stresses there. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's a lot of uh, sort of there's a parallel information flow up to the prime minister coming from the uh, politically sensitive operational advice from. The public service, and then the operationally sensitive political advice going up from the the policy office. Yes, we have been reading your uh, yes. your your. Uh, <laughs> I do your, my homework. Your, your Mark Lalonde and Gordon <laughs> Robertson from 1971. Um, uh, yeah, no, that's. I mean, the advice that 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 PMO policy would give. Um, you know, it, it can be on a range of things, um, but uh, but ultimately it. I didn't think our job was to was to, as I used to put it, out expert the experts, right. We don't have enough resources uh, to to have uh, the kind of capacity to second guess everything you know in an expert way that the public service was doing. But we wanted to assess um, you know is this furthering the government's political agenda? The government has an agenda. Um, they're trying to drive forward their priorities. How does this fit in with that? Um, so a lot of the job is asking informed questions, uh, making sure that that the minister, including the prime minister, has the right information to make an informed decision. Sometimes it's making sure that the range of options that's being presented um, is uh, is the right range politically. That didn't mean cutting out options. Normally, I mean, if the public service wants to recommend a particular A, B, and C, I wouldn't go to them and say, no, no, C, you can't talk about C. My normally it would be well. There's a D option that I've heard from some, you know, from a government relations person or I've come across maybe an MP mentioned it seems interesting you know could you elaborate on this to give a wider range of options because I think that you know I think that that the minister might like to see that um, so making sure that 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 uh, that all the information was there and that it um, that it made sense if, if 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 they were saying a program was going to cost a particular amount sort of pushing back a little bit you know well why did why do you think it's going to cost that have you thought about this or that um, and you know, if they had if they had strong answers, I wasn't in much of a position to you know to argue with them. But sometimes you would have a discussion and realize that that you know when you ask questions, sometimes the answers weren't as sharp maybe as you might have expected, and so you could just ask more questions. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's very much the challenge function of challenging them on their explanations of things and trying to poke holes and see sort of 
where the strengths and the weaknesses of the different options they're presenting. Are. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a, that's 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 a good way to put it. The the challenge function contestation um, things that you know the academic literature talks about. I think very much, um, and not not from a hostile way. I mean, the, there's a challenge function that happens within the public service too. You know, the clerk plays that role when something when something is coming up. You know, ADMs will play that role as 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 advice and proposals. Um, uh, are developed within the public service. There is that challenge function, and I saw you know our role as being sort of the final one, and often from a political point of view. The political being, how does it fit with the government's agenda? Mm-hmm. Um, we would kind of be pushing back on stuff in terms of finances, in terms of you know how it fit with yeah, yeah with the government's agenda. So, so in the government, when you say how does it fit with the government's agenda? The other side, and sort of in minister's office and political offices, there's a pretty sharp divide between communication staff and policy staff. And before we start talking about the other types of staff, I'm just wondering how sensitive was your role and sort of the work you did to the communication side of it? Because, of course, all policy that goes across your desk eventually has to be sold to the public. So how was the communication side taken into account in your work? I, th- I think, um, Chen, that you've 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 implied um, uh, something that's 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 really important, which is policy cannot be completely divorced from communications. I mean, policy work is communications in the sense that yeah, if you if you have a policy but you can't sell it, um, you know, and you then then it's not good policy because in a democracy you have to be able to marshal support for what you're doing. Sometimes that may be the government um, you know, putting out something that's unpopular and they have to spend political capital to try to convince people of it. Um, that's, 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 that's a legitimate thing. Um, but, uh, but ultimately policy and communications have to go hand in hand. Um, but my job was you know, so, so when we looked at stuff it was very much, yeah, I mean, how will this be perceived? by the public? How will it be perceived by journalists? How will it be perceived by, by different stakeholders? You know, is there something here that's just a big red flag that you know, there is no way that we could sell this particular aspect? Or, uh, you know, it contradicts things that, 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 that the party has said previously. Uh, it contradicts things that, you know, our MPs had said in opposition. Um, maybe you still do it, but at least you have to identify those things. So some of the political analysis, the policy analysis we would do would be how how consistent is it? Um, as as you know, in an, in an MC, um, there are sections on you know on strategic communications. There's an annex on you know parliamentary the parliamentary plan, and so policy people would be involved with those um, in helping to think through the implications of of, of the policy. Um, but uh, but. You know, communications is only one part of what a policy advisor would would, would look at. Um, uh, you're also looking at, at at the depth of the issue and and the complexities of the issue, um, you know, in itself. So we used to have a maxim at PMO that uh, you know, quote, comms doesn't drive policy, um, and you know that that sounds good. But the reason you have to keep repeating that at frequent intervals is that there's a temptation for comms to drive policy, um, and you know, left to itself, comms will drive 
policy, especially in a minority government where, again, every decision every day has the potential to, you know, bring down the government. Um, uh, communications, you know, will often want to say, like, I need, I need three bullets. Uh, this bullet would sound really great, so let's say that. Um, and the role of a, of a policy person would say, well, hang on, uh, like, one, that bullet hasn't, doesn't have cabinet approval, you can't say that. Uh, you know, maybe we could say it later, but we, need, we can't just invent it now, we need to go through a process. We need to make sure that we're okay saying that because it's a complex issue and there's different perspectives on it. Uh, if you say that, uh, then you're storing up trouble later on because there will be you know, there's implications or knock-on effects of saying that on other policies that you need to consider and make sure we're absolutely okay with that. So the sometimes the policy role is to be, you know, the skunk at the garden party and, and, <laughs> and say, you know, yeah, that would sound really good, but it's complicated and, you know, we need to talk it through more before we before we go there. So I think on balance, um, you know, governments governments do that. That's often you know, that's the role of PCO as well, or or public servants to be able to point out that that context. Um, uh, but sometimes, uh, you know, governments weigh things differently, and there's there's a need to go down a particular particular road. So um, policy informs all of that. But yeah, it works closely with communications, and sometimes just in a very prosaic way. Um, uh, you know, a minister, the prime minister is is making an announcement, and the communications people at PCO say, and and in PMO Comms have drafted Comms products. Well, they're going to get sent to PMO Policy to review, and hopefully, it's reviewing it from the point of view of uh, of you know making sure that we're okay on the on the policy content, and not just correcting you know semicolons. But um, you know, you do it, you do, you do what you can. Thanks again for, to Dr. Paul Wilson for taking the time to sit with us. Absolutely. It was very, very insightful. Uh, as a closing note, on Friday, unfortunately a little too late to make it in this podcast, uh, the Liberal government released a white paper on parliamentary reform uh, as opposed to democratic reform. I would suggest our audience take a look at that, and then hopefully next week that will be one of our major topics of conversation. Um, in closing out the show, I would just like to reiterate, as always, that if you uh, enjoyed it, please like, share, rate, and review any of the uh, any of the above, at least one of the above. Yeah, and it uh, really helps out the show. Tell a friend, guys, and thanks so much for listening once again. Yeah, as cheers. We, uh, conclude our tenth ever episode. Is it the tenth? I'm it gonna call the, the next one the tenth. I'm, I'm ah. bringing the cake for episode eleven, <laughs> the tenth episode. See you next time, guys. <laughs>